God, you are good and you call us to a life that is uh, not only um, being in relationship with you, but uh, being in relationship with others around us as well. So we pray this morning as Aaron uh, brings this message to us from the book of James that you will give us open hearts to hear what you have for us this morning. Uh, may we kind of break down any barriers uh, from ourselves that may be holding us back from what you have for us um, and allow us to really take this in and not get offended by what we hear from your word, but to be open to it, to reflect on our lives and to put things into practice to make changes, uh, but only with uh, the, the support of your Holy Spirit. We pray for Aaron as he brings us. pray for words of wisdom and words from you, Father. Amen. Amen. Cool. Thanks, Greg. All right. Good to go. Cool. There we are. Awesome. Uh, about two months ago, we were sitting at home on a Saturday night and um, got a, a, a message from a friend from our, my childhood days. And uh, it was a forwarded message. So you kind of, when it first comes through, you're like, oh, what's this? You know, there's a lot of spam going around at the moment. Um, but unfortunately, it was a very devastating message. It was a message that one of our other friends um, from my childhood days in Tapuki had been tragically killed uh, on that Saturday night around uh, early March. And um, there was a lot of speculation as to what had happened in the incident. Um, we now know that there was an altercation and something had happened in that space. So I found out Saturday night, and it was pretty devastating news. I hadn't seen him in about 10 or 12 years since we'd finished up school and that, but he had always held a pretty special place in my heart. So um, I jumped into a little bit of action, and I was trying to find uh, any contact details for his family. I couldn't. Rang mum and dad. Hey, you know, have you guys got any contact details? Mum found um, his mum on Facebook, so I reached out, started messaging, found out that the tangi was starting on Tuesday and with the main funeral on the Friday. So I shot over Tuesday to go and see the family. Now, uh, one of the things about this family is that they, um, they were... Uh, they lived just down the road from us, um, hung out every day, all the time, and they were kind of um, one of my initial entrances into seeing what a Māori family kind of looks like, right? And didn't have a lot of those in our church, but uh, this family for me was a, one, of, one of those families that was very welcoming and engaging in that way. So going to a tangi was very new for me. I'd been to marais before I'd been on for the final funeral and things like that, but going on the first day when they're taking the body from the home to the marae for the first time is a very special experience and one that I'd recommend, not that we want to go to funerals on a regular basis, but if you get an opportunity, it's definitely a special experience. One of the things that I felt on that day was very much a bit of an outsider because they're speaking in Māori, um, they're talking about uh, part of his life that I wasn't a part of. Um, the only people there that I knew were his parents and his siblings. You know, so there's five of them that I knew, and there's a there's hundred or so people that are there, right? So I very much felt like an outer, and, and being white, I was definitely looking on the outer in that space as well. Before the body left uh, the home, uh, his dad came over to me and, um, and was not expecting this whatsoever. Oh, Aaron, you're a minister, eh? Yeah, yeah. Oh, could you pray for us before we leave, leave here? So I was able to pray, which is a pretty special special thing. Then at the marae, we were sitting in the Whare and it was all in Māori, so I was just sitting here trying to pick up the odd word and hearing things, but 100% not understanding really at all what was going on in that space. And I was sitting there, and uh, his cousin was sitting in front of me, and at first I didn't recognize him, found out later we went to school together, obviously as age happens, and longer hair and scruffy beard and all that, I kind of didn't quite recognize him as much. Well, he had a, um, an oar that his... Um, that Pitanata, my friend's dad, had made, and uh, he didn't really know what it was going to be for, but he knew now that it was going to be going with the, with the casket. And, um, and his cousin just looked back and goes, here, you can hold that, right? And I was just, again, taken back that they were welcoming me into the space, that, into their family space in this way. 
uh, the, the pleasantries and the um, formalities had kind of finished up and everyone was dispersing and I, and I went over by the, by the coffin. It was sitting there and again, the cousin was sitting right next to the coffin and he goes, oh, Aaron, here, come sit here. And he moved and allowed me to sit right next to there throughout this whole time. And then again on the Friday when I came back for the, for the main funeral, the family was just doing something that, that I think all, all of us strive to do, but sometimes struggle a little bit, which is to invite those that may be on the outer into that inner space in that way. I had never felt so much on the outer, but so welcomed at the same time. And I was deeply challenged over that week because I started to wonder what could we as a church learn from my experience in that space? What could we as a church learn where for most of us that are sitting here, we probably feel quite welcome here. We feel quite normal. This is our church family. This is our church home. Not for everyone, I totally get that. Some of you will be in this space still feeling on the outer, still feeling like you're not fully welcomed into this place. And hopefully after today, that may change a little bit. But I was just starting to wonder, what, would we, what do we need to do as a church? How do we need to change as a church to make our place feel more like what I felt on that tangi, in that funeral, on that marae that day? Someone who looked like an outsider, who felt like an outsider, whose words and language was an outsider to that, to that space but by every stretch of the imagination felt 100% a part of what was going on in that space. You see, James is going to present us with a challenge exactly like that. And so if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to urge you to turn to James chapter 2. The interesting thing about this passage is that it comes after chapter 1, right? It's very interesting. For those of you guys that were here last week, Richard um, spoke about this passage, and one of the key verses in that passage In verse 20, it says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. Other um, translations might be, um, Do not uh, only be hearers of the word, but be doers also. Right? So this this verse, this passage has come. After what, uh, next week, um, what comes after the passage we're looking at today is around, um, you know, uh, show me your faith without your works, because that is a dead faith, actually. Right? And so nestled in between the, be doers of the word, and faith without works is dead, comes this passage on favoritism and prejudice and how we welcome people into our church. We start there just in verse one very simply, and to be honest, we could just sit here all day in this one verse. We could just sit and wrestle with this verse and and wrestle with the way that we experience church and experience our lives the way that we live out church, and the way that we live out lives. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Believers in Jesus must not show favoritism. And we all sit here and we nod in agreement because we believe that to be true. We all nod because we want that to be the case. But the unfortunate thing is, is that most of us struggle to live this out to its full extent. Most of us, in some way, shape, or form, show favoritism, right? Greg, this morning, has already shown that favoritism, that he enjoys iPhones, and if you use the App Store, you're better than those who use the Android Store, right? Greg, yeah, right? 
Greg has already expressed that. Yesterday we were at HM Rage, uh, which is a teens camp coming up, and we're chatting about making some videos from some of the speakers, and one of the guys politely said, you know, yeah, if they're going to make a video, just make sure they use it on an, make it on an iPhone, right? You know, there's just these kind of favoritisms that we choose for whatever reason. It's our phone choice, it's our car choice, it's food choice, whatever it is. We have favorites. It's a natural part of who we are. Would you agree? Yeah, that makes sense. The problem is, is when that boils over to people. The word here, favoritism, is, is a Greek word, and I'm going to uh, have a crack at it. Um, it's been a while since I've, I've done my Greek, so um, uh, prosopolemphia, something like that. There's one letter in there, I can't quite remember what it is. It's a descriptive word for showing partiality. It literally means to receive someone according to their face. What James is telling us not to do is to show favoritism or prejudice based on what you see before you. So when someone walks through the doors of our church and we see them from afar, we go, probably not going to talk to them today. That is a sin of favoritism. You see, the way that we express that in our church inadvertently is by only talking to the same people every single week. By only going to the same groups of people who make us feel comfortable every single week. That is a sin of favoritism. James is going to give us an illustration which I think is quite far removed from our society. It's quite far removed from what we experience here. James's example of a rich man and a poor man coming in. The rich man comes in and he's all dressed up in fine clothes, he's got nice rings on and everything, and then a poor man enters and he's in very shabby clothes. The sin of favoritism is to say to the rich man, come and sit in this favorite seat of ours. Now in our church that would be in the back obviously, not in the front. Um, but come and sit in the back, here's the best spot, you sit here, and, uh, and we're going to honor you in this way. But you say to the poor man, come and sit at the front. No, I'm just kidding. You say to the poor man, come and sit at our feet, James says. Come sit in a place of lowly honor. James is saying that the sin of partiality is to raise one up and to lower the other one. Now, I think that exact illustration is probably quite far removed from the culture that we live in today. In one sense, in a direct, literal sense. But actually in another sense, and we're going to actually cover the, the poor versus rich off in a little bit. But right now as we think about the sin of partiality, the sin of favoritism, the sin of prejudice, the way that it creeps in in the most smallest of ways is by continually going to the same people every single week at church and talking to them. By not seeing the new people that enter through those doors by not seeing the person sitting by themselves, by not seeing the person who nobody has talked to for half an hour while they've come to church. You see, what we often think is somebody else will do that. I've just got to talk to my friends this week because I haven't seen them in seven days. We justify our prejudice and our favoritism. And I know that that is just a small aspect of prejudice. I'm not saying that that's, you know, rights in the streets kind of prejudice, Right? But it is. It starts in small, in small ways. And I'm not speaking of this from a place of, I have it all together. This is very normal for me as well. I experience this when I go to the high school. It's much easier for me to go and talk to some of the guys who are very sporty. That's easy for me to do. That's, that's comfortable. It's easy for me to go and find the youth that come to our youth group and go and have a conversation with them. It's easy for me to do that. Do you know what's hard? Seeing the kid over to the side reading their book by themselves. It's hard to see them and then think, well, what good is that conversation going to be? Right? 
The sin of favoritism enters into my life every time I walk into that high school, which is a few times a week. You see, as I've been reading this passage over the last week, and God has been doing a work in my life for a number of months now around this kind of a topic, I started to look into that mirror that that, uh, James spoke about in chapter 1, and what it revealed in me was actually what he says here in verse 4. You have not discriminated, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? You see, I stand here before you as a judge with evil thoughts. But I also think I stand before our congregation who would also say that we are judges with evil thoughts. We don't want to admit it. We don't want to sit here and be told that that's who we are. But I think if we can be honest with ourselves, even in a small way, that's where it begins. Even in a small way, we show favoritism in this way. So we must understand uh, and ask the question, why is this such a problem? Why does James present this between the two passages which talk about being doers of the word, and then again that faith without works is dead? Right here we have this um, passage around favoritism and prejudice and, and favoring the rich over the poor. In verse 5, he says, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? You see why this is such a problem? Because it is the opposite of God's nature. As I was reading this this week, a story uh, popped into my head from the Old Testament. It's the story of um, Haggai and Ishmael. Uh, Hagar, sorry, not Haggai. Haggai and Ishmael. Many of you will know it. It's found in chapter 16. This is before Ishmael is born. Hagar becomes pregnant with Abraham's, well, Abraham at this point, um, son. And Abraham's wife, Sarai, whose idea it was for Hagar to be pregnant, you know, gets a bit upset and decides to send Hagar away. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was a spring that is beside the road to Shur, and he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel, of the, Lord, the angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. Very similar to the promise that God gave Abraham. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you'll give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your misery. The name Ishmael means God hears. Abraham was the one that the promise was going to come through, and his slave runs away, and God sends his angel to her and hears her cry and her plea. He gives another promise about who he will be. And then he goes on that um, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her, you are the God who sees me. And there, that, uh, that well is now called Be'er Laharoi, the God who sees. You see, the reason that it's such a problem that we show favoritism and prejudice and judgments with evil thoughts in this way is because it is the opposite of God's nature. We as human beings see what is before our face. God doesn't view people that way. We know that with the story of David, that is true, isn't it? That as Samuel comes to anoint the king, Samuel's off tending the sheep and they go through all the other sons from biggest to smallest because surely it's the oldest son who will be king. Surely it is someone like Saul who will be king. But actually it's a small shepherd boy because God does not look 
at what man sees. God looks at the heart. God sees to the inside. It also says here that God will, um, has chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to inherit the kingdom he promised. Where do we find that? In the Beatitudes, in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom. This is the nature of God, that he sees those that the world does not see, that he hears those that the world does not hear, and he cares for them in a deep and impactful way. You always have to be careful when you're reading because the writers like to throw big words around like this, but, but you, he says, have dishonored the poor, but you have dishonored the poor. The conviction and the, of, of James here and what he has judged the listeners here is this, that they are not living the way God wants them to live because they are preferring the rich over the poor. God chooses the poor, but we as man choose the rich. This is what James is saying to us here. As we sit in this moment with just that phrase, as we look into that mirror of the law that, that chapter 1 speaks about, what is reflected back to us? Do I choose the poor in the way that God chooses the poor? Or do I choose the rich? Do I choose what is comfortable? Do I choose what is going to benefit me more than it's going to benefit others? Do I see people walking down the street and I think to myself, I could help them, but I don't have the time right now. Now, I'm not standing here as someone who, is, who has perfected any of this. I stand here convicted because that is me. The reason I'm passionate about this is because as I've read this week and as I've wrestled with this this week, I've seen that this is me. And maybe I'm making a blanket prejudice judgment here, but I think it's us as well. I think all of us, if we're honest, sits within this framework as well, that we have dishonored the poor. The other um, story that came to mind with this verse was the story of the Good Samaritan, right? Who is my neighbor then? Who is my neighbor? And uh, that's what we see as we read along um, that James talks about um, loving your neighbor as yourself. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. And then he says, but if you show favoritism, you sin and convicted as lawbreakers. The story of the Good Samaritan teaches us that everybody is our neighbor. That is the point of what Jesus is trying to get at. As I was thinking about it this week, I think if we're honest, most of us, if we saw someone beaten on the side of the road, would probably either help or call for help. We would probably do that, right? I think, though, that what we sometimes do is we begin to take different roads. And what I mean by that is we start to move out of places where we have poor neighbors. We start to move our kids out of schools that are struggling because the wrong kids are there. We start to put our barriers up in our lives so that we aren't confronted with the reality of the world that is around us. You see, if we were there, we probably would help. But we have, and I don't think we have done this willfully going, well, I'm going to move out because I don't want to hang out with those poor people by any means. But I think if we're honest, we, we decide we want a better life for our family and that's over here or that's over here. 
But by doing so, we are now walking a road where the, beaten, the person who's beaten and broken is no longer there. We no longer see them. You see, the reason earlier I said that the, the message of James in verse two, uh, verse 2 and 3 there, that story is not so relevant for us today is because, if we're honest, we don't have a lot of poor people who come into our building on a regular basis. And again, we would love them to be. I'm sure all of us would want them to be so we can shower love on them, we can care for them, we can show God's love to them. But maybe we've set up a system where they wouldn't even be comfortable walking into the doors to begin with. Maybe we're building our roads around the roads where people are broken. It's just the thought that I had this week. It's one that's deeply convicting to me at the moment. It's one that I don't have an answer for right now. Maybe in the future, maybe soon. Maybe somebody out here has an answer and we can move forward. As we close, we give another... uh, as we, as we come to the end of the passage, James gives us another reason why we are to not have judge, uh, prejudices and favoritisms. Because we are to look past what we see at face value and see what God sees. Uh, James in verses sort of 8 to 11 there, he's talking about the law. It's a little bit confusing because sometimes he uses royal law and then he just says law. He says law of liberty. There's kind of a few different things going on in there. But to make it simple, what James is effectively setting up for us is he's going... Every single one of us are lawbreakers, okay? That's what he's trying to point out in that passage. Every single one of us are lawbreakers. Every single one of us have broken God's law. He says then, so how are we to respond then? If we're all lawbreakers, how are we to respond? He says in verse 12, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to any who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Again, James is highlighting a teaching of Jesus about the unmerciful servant, where the king forgave him a debt that he would never be able to repay and set him free, and yet that same person who was freed of that debt goes down the road to a servant who owes him like half a day's wage or whatever it is and throws him in prison until he pays it. James is saying that is a contradiction and that cannot be so. If you and I have been shown mercy by God, we therefore are called to show mercy to others. What that actually means is we don't see people at face value. We don't see people based on the mistakes that they have made because God doesn't see us that way. We don't see the people who are around us who are in poverty and maybe because they made great mistakes with their money. Maybe because they are lazy. Maybe because they have poor choices, whatever it is. But guess what? We don't see people that way. We look past what is before us. We step alongside them. We get to know them. The way that God sees us is he knows us deeply and intimately. Far greater than we'll ever know anyone. I get that. But how are we to know someone beyond face value if we don't have more than a conversation with them? Sometimes in Cambridge, and I, I very much experienced this when I first arrived, was it felt, and, and, and I have later come to understand it's not this way, felt very wealthy town, right? And it is. It's middle to upper class. There's lots of wealth. It's, you know, people have done well. There's, no, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But I never understood the poverty that was also here in our community. I didn't realize it was there. 
until I went on a visit with a, a guy from Bridges Church called Richie. Many of you will know him. He took me on a house visit last year to see a family, and I went, oh, this is in Cambridge, right? Because I'd built my road in a safer path. I didn't understand what was happening in our community. There was brokenness all around us. I feel like in the last little while, there have been more and more posts on the Cambridge grapevine asking for help for people. Now, I don't know if you guys realize this, but I'm aware of three deaths that happened in our community just over this weekend. So most of us will know about the one from the tree that fell down on, on Friday morning. All right, so there's a tragedy there. I don't know the person. I don't know the situation exactly. Um, I had a message Saturday morning. One of the girls in our youth community, her mum passed away on Friday night. And uh, I was talking with Celeste yesterday. We believe her, her dad passed away when she was younger as well. She has no other siblings. She's now an orphan. And then if you guys were aware, there was a post on the grapevine yesterday that a, um, a family lost their husband and dad yesterday as well. So somebody actually reached out to the church for that. In those instances, and as we see on Facebook, pay it forward, the grapevine, whatever it is, people are reaching out for help. Just imagine this. Imagine if every time somebody asked for help, they were pointed to this church. They were pointed to this church. Or even better, every time someone asked for help, one of us in this congregation responded, we'll be there. We've got food. We've got blankets. We've got meals. We've got ever, whatever it is that you need. You need a place to stay? Our house is open. What if we began to see what God sees in our community instead of what we want to see? Let's start traveling those roads again and seeing people down there. That's a very big picture thing. Today, the first step is to go and talk to someone new that you've never talked to before. Maybe that person who you're like, I didn't really want to get stuck in a conversation with them. Today's your day. Now everyone's going to be like, oh, they're talking to me for the first time in a while. <laughs> Maybe today you come and join us for the chaplaincy and you start to hear about a way that you can care for our community. Maybe you don't actually like sport, and that's okay, because maybe you just do the training and utilize it wherever you need to utilize it, in your workplace, in your school, wherever that is. It's an awesome opportunity. As I close, I want to remind you, our God is a God of mercy. You see, as I have felt judged by God this week about being a judge with evil thoughts, about taking people at face value and showing the sin of favoritism. The amazing thing is, is that God doesn't give me the boot. So see you later, Aaron. Better luck next time. He comes alongside me. He walks with me. He sees me for who he, wants me to, who he wants me to be. And he invites me to walk with him again. But that doesn't mean that I get to keep living the way that I'm living, right? We all understand this. The sin of favoritism is positioned here by James between being doers of the word and faith without works is dead. And here he's giving us an example. Here he's giving us the one thing that we need to go out today and start doing and start living and start eradicating from our life. Which may mean in a year or two's time, this church is filled with people that society has outcast, that society has turned their back on. And that's amazing because you know what? Those are the people who God sees and those are the people who God hears. So will you choose the way God chooses? He chooses the poor. Or will you choose comfort? Will you be picking favorites this week? 
Where will you sit? Let me pray. Father, I think we can all honestly stand here feeling convicted by your word. But Lord, you are faithful and just, and when we confess our sins, you are faithful to forgive them and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So Father, for myself, I confess that sin this morning of favoritism, of showing partiality, of being prejudiced towards people. Father, of not going down those roads where I know that people are who it's going to be difficult to love them. But I also know, Lord, that I'm not the only one here. Father, from this moment on, may we be a church, Lord, and we can only do this through your power, through the power of your Holy Spirit, by being in deep relationship with you, Father. Help us to see people as you see them, Father. Help us to make the choice of choosing the poor the way that you do, Father. Father, may this church be known for blessing and loving our community. Father, continue to provide opportunities for us to do so and the boldness to walk into that space. Lord, may your word not just sit here in this building today, but may it go with us wherever we are. Father, may our hearts and our lives never be the same because of your word. We thank you for your forgiveness for us. We thank you for the mercy you have shown to us. Help us, Lord, to go and show that to others now. We pray for these things in Jesus' mighty and powerful name. Amen.